We are working our way through chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 27 to 36 this morning, but I want to back up to 19 because there's so much going on here in terms of context. So find John 12, 19. If you were with us last Sunday, you'll recognize some of this that we taught on last week. John 12, 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're not doing any good. And we paraphrased it last week. You see that it's not helping us at all that we're not arresting this Jesus. Look, they say, the world has gone after him. Verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. Remember, we're at Passover time. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip then came and told Jesus. And we saw last Sunday how it was the presence of these Gentiles in Jerusalem for Passover seeking Jesus that sort of set off this signal in the mind of Christ. And here's how Jesus answers them in verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now up until this point, the hour had always been in the future. But now he says, with the coming of the, with the announcement that the Gentiles are here to see you, he says, now the hour has come. And then Jesus gives us this beautiful agricultural word picture about death. In verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. It just stays as one kernel, right? But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It bears a harvest. And then we have this practical application for us in the world, verses 25 and 26. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, Jesus says. And where I am, there my servant will be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So we we fleshed, there's a lot there. We fleshed out what all that means. If you you weren't in church last Sunday, I suggest go to our YouTube page, listen. It will be worth your time to find out what it means to love your life too much in this world and also what it means to hate your life in this world. Okay, as we come to today's passage, let's be reminded of our, our timeline of the Passion Week. We are still on Tuesday so we've been working our way through John chapter 12. First of all, we had the Greeks that, uh, that are in town last week, and now we have, up till verse 36, this intense warning that Jesus is going to leave with the people of Israel. So we're still on Tuesday, still looking towards the cross on Friday. Verse 27. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Verse 31. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The crowd answered him, verse 34. We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, for a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and he went away and hid himself from them. Okay, I want to start this morning 
by looking at that very last statement at the end of verse 36, and then we're going to work our way backwards into the text. Sometimes it's helpful to do this when you're studying a passage. You go to the end and you look at the results or the consequence of a particular event, and then you ask the question, well, how did we get there? Right? What happened? How did we get there? Why did it happen? And what we read at the end of the section there in 36 is very unexpected and quite shocking. The text says, these things Jesus spoke and then he went away. So you can picture, he's done teaching in the temple courts. Now, he didn't have a binder like me, but he folds up his binder, right? And he looks out at the crowd for the last time and he strides away. He walks away, right? And then John shocks us with the next statement, and he hid himself from the people. He hid him, hid himself. Now, why, you might ask, in your head, you're like, well, I don't understand. Why would the savior of the world walk away from a captive audience who is listening to him? Why would he walk away from people that might want to be saved? Shouldn't he hang around longer and provide more evidence for these folks so that they might come to know him? It's dangerous for us to come at the Bible from that type of perspective. Well-meaning Christians do this all the time, but they end up misunderstanding how God saves sinners. If you rightly grasp God's sovereignty over salvation, you can rest assured that not one person whom God purposed to save that day was lost. Not one. Because Jesus left and hid from them does not mean that anybody who's out there going, oh, but I wanted to be saved and now I can't be. This is what we call in theological study a judicial withdrawal. A judicial withdrawal. Most people read the end of verse 36, and it looks like just this sort of mundane footnote of history, but in reality, it is loaded with meaning, and for Israel, that statement at the end of verse 36 is an ominous sign. The Messiah has said all, all that he's going to say at this point. He's going to say, he's done. Now he's going to withdraw from God's house, and he's going to withdraw himself and hide himself from the people. He's going to conceal himself from the people so that he cannot be found. Now, when I read, the, read this this week in my study, the first thing that came to my mind was the extended narrative that we read in Ezekiel chapter 10, right? Ezekiel 10, 600 years before Christ is born. The glory of the Lord departs from the temple. How many of you guys know that story? It's very much in, written in detail. The glory of the Lord departs from the temple in preparation for judgment that's about to fall on the city of Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar is about to come to Jerusalem, his Babylonian army. On God's orders, they are going to lay siege to the city of Jerusalem, 586 BC. Now why? Because Israel had despised God's law. They had turned to idols. The land was filled with violence. They had refused to listen to the prophets that God sent to them. Not only had they abandoned Yahweh, but they had provoked him because of their unbelief and their spiritual adultery. And now, genuine worship was no longer possible in God's house. And so Ezekiel describes in detail how God's spirit, his Shekinah glory, withdraws from the temple and ends up prophetically up on the Mount of Olives. Ezekiel then relays how God said this to him in a vision. This is, this is what God says to Ezekiel. You live in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see but do not see. Ears to hear, but do not hear, for they are a rebellious house. Now, I want you to remember that statement as we go along in John chapter 12, because something similar is happening as the Messiah of Israel departs the temple of God. Friends, as long-suffering as God is, and he is, right? Every person in this room who's saved is a testimony to how patient God is. 
with us, right? How long-suffering he is. But there is a limit to his patience. And there is a limit to how much wickedness and idolatry he will put up with. 586 BC is an example of that. As Paul details for us in Romans 1, there will eventually come a time when God will withdraw and give, his pe- give a people or a nation over to what they really want. As self-destructive as it might be, he will give them over to the, to the lust of their flesh. He will give them over to the dishonoring of their bodies, to a depraved mind, incapable of wisdom or rational thought. Does that sound at all familiar? What's happening in our world today? God gives people over. His patience runs out. So Jesus finishes his teaching. He withdraws from the temple. He hides himself from his fellow Jews. Now, how do we get to that point? Let's go back to the Greeks. Look back at verse 20. These Greeks have sought out a private meeting with Jesus. And we saw last week how their presence there and this request that they make to meet with Jesus triggers in him a clear recognition that the culmination of his mission on earth is about to come to fruition. He says for the first time, the hour has come. And then in verse 27, that recognition sparks very deep emotions within Jesus. He says, now my soul has become what? Troubled. And that word troubled is very strong in the original Greek. It's a form of the Greek, the Greek verb terasso and refers to a range of emotions, agitation, distress, even the idea of, be, of revulsion and horror. These are the emotions that Jesus is feeling. And you can understand why, right? Remember what he's facing. Not just physical, but spiritual. It's Tuesday, of course. The cross is only three days away, but he's feeling the weight of this right now. Agitation, distress, revulsion, and horror. So what we get here is, I think, a sneak peek into the mind-boggling mystery of the two natures of God the Son, right? Fully God and fully man. Remember that he'd humbled himself by laying aside the voluntary use of his divine attributes so that he could live a life on this earth like you and I, so he could walk in our shoes, so to speak, right? And so he experiences all the human frailties that we have, yet without sin. So yeah, he felt the full weight of temptation in this moment. He felt the inward distress of having to face this immense physical pain just three days away, plus all of the spiritual anguish that goes with it. Now, I tried to think uh, in my mind, like, is there an example in my life where I get sort of troubled or distressed about things coming up? And I, I don't want to make light of, the, obviously, the passion story or, or be irreverent in any way, but you know what the only example I could come up with? How many of you guys get really distressed in your soul when you have a dentist appointment coming up? <laughs> I Like, you got to get a root canal, Right? If it's Tuesday and I know I'm getting a root canal on Friday, I'm already distressed. I'm already thinking, it's like a shadow coming over me, like, oh, it's coming, that pain, right? The needles and the, the drilling and the smoke and, <laughs> right? That smoke that rises up and that puffy face for like forever. That's how frail I am, <laughs> that a root canal does this to me. What is Jesus facing? Imagine the shame of being arrested and treated like a common criminal. Having to stand trial before corrupt human beings, sinners whom he himself made. Standing before them, imagine the injustice of that. Then there's the scourging of the whip that will come across his back and shoulders, the crown of thorns placed on his head, the weight of the cross as he makes his way up to Golgotha, 
the nails being driven into his wrists and into his ankles, the agonizing process of slowly suffocating under the weight of your own body as the nails tear at your flesh and your muscle and and rip your ligaments apart. Consider the shame of being executed between petty thieves, becoming a spectacle for sinners to walk by and gawk at you as you hang there dying, to be spit upon and mocked by your enemies, by people whose true father is the devil. Any of those things, any one of those things would wreck the best of us. And this is what Jesus is facing in this moment. And the physical agony is only the beginning, right? We have the... the, We have more than that. For three hours, Jesus is going to become sin as our Passover lamb, a lamb so precious that he's capable of ransoming the full cumulative weight of all of humanity's sin. Think about that. And to do it so completely and sufficiently that he is able to satisfy the eternal wrath of God once for all time. Can you imagine? Can we even, I don't think we can even process this type of thing the weight that he's feeling in this moment. All we do, this is why, guys, we continually here at Oak Hill, we talk about the gospel. We talk about the cross. We talk about the sacrifice, the substitution, the wrath that we deserve, that Jesus took that on our behalf. We talk about it over and over again because all we can do, because we really can't, again, dentistry, right? We, we cannot possibly fathom what Jesus is facing here. All we can do is stand back in awe and praise him, Right? For, for, the, for what motivates him in this moment. His love for the Father, first of all, but his love for you and I as well. That he's willing to lay down his life and go to the cross. What we see happening here in Jesus is a collision of two powerful realities. On the one hand, you have the horror and the distress of his imminent death. And on the other, you have his unbending commitment to obey the Father. And those thing, two things collide in these three days of the Passion Week. So let's look at what the coming of this hour means. If you look at verses 31 to 33, you'll see that Jesus fully understands the massive significance of this moment. And it is massive, right? We're talking about the single most important period of time in all of human history. Have you really processed through that? Human history, think about it. This is the the single most important few days in the history of the world. And for us who are sitting here redeemed, saved, found in Christ, There is nothing more important, right? This is everything to us. That's why we talk about it all the time. But look at all the eschatological meaning we see here in verses 31 and 32. I'll paraphrase them so you catch all the implications. First of all, Jesus says, now judgment has come upon this world and all of its inhabitants. Secondly, he says, now the ruler or the prince of this world, Satan, will be defeated and driven out. And third, as for me, Jesus says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw and save all kinds of different people, men and women from every age, every race, every culture, and every language. There's a lot going on there in verses 31 and 32. That's a lot of theological truth, but we should start by recognizing one little word here that you you might just read right past. It's the Greek word noon, and it's used twice here. You've got to see it. Jesus says, now judgment has come. You see it? Now, Satan has been cast out. The word just means in this present time. Now these things are happening. So catch this. Jesus declares the hour of my glory has come and now at this time in the year AD 33, judgment has come upon the world and Satan is cast out. Now you might object to this, right? Well, hold on a second. How is that possible? 
How is that possible? In what sense has God's judgment come upon the world when every day we see sinners in our lives escaping God's wrath? And you might object and say, in what sense has Satan been cast out if even this very day he is still prowling around looking for someone to devour? Those are good questions. So we have to understand and we have to interpret the New Testament in light of how the kingdom of God has been and is being established even today. This is the biblical framework that we know is already but not yet. And I know we've talked about this already in this series, but it's worth summarizing again. Already but not yet. We live in a great theological tension right now. The promise of Scripture is that the believer already possesses every spiritual blessing in Christ. But we haven't experienced the fullness of that yet. Not yet. We already have it, but we haven't yet experienced it in all of its fullness. So in one sense, we're already redeemed and adopted and sanctified. In fact, the Bible says that our salvation is so secure, so certain, that we're already seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. But we haven't yet experienced the fullness of that. We won't until we pass from this life. So it's already, but it's not yet. And underneath the theological tension there are the two comings of Christ. At his first coming, Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God. He inaugurated the last days. There's a lot of talk today about the end times of the last days. We've been in them for 2,000 years, folks. Jesus inaugurated the last days. The clock started to tick down towards the consummation of all things. Luke calls this the age of the Gentiles. We call it the church age sometimes, but it is the last phase of human history before Christ returns. At his second company, he is going to complete this process. He is going to establish his kingdom in all of its fullness. And that is our future hope and our joy. Amen? In the meantime, we live for now in the overlap of the ages. We live a life of faith. The assurance of things hoped for in the future and the conviction of things not seen now in the present. And this is the way the New Testament, New Testament authors thought the way they wrote, and the way they lived. And so we have to adopt this same mindset. Now, in thinking about this judgment that has now come upon the world, you might object. You say, hold on a second. Jesus says that he came to save, not to judge. So how is it that if he came to save and not judge, now he declares judgments upon the world? He makes that really clear. That was his mission, to seek and save the lost sheep of the house of Israel. No question about that. But you have to understand this as well. In his coming to save, he forced a division of humanity that was unavoidable. He forced a, a division of sheep and goats, didn't he? That was unavoidable. A division between believer and disbeliever. A division between children of darkness and children of light. So the cross casts a shadow over all of humanity, every single human being. The elect are drawn to it. The elect are drawn to it, but at the same time, it looms as an instrument of judgment over those who reject the sacrifice of Christ that took place on that cross. And where does this judgment begin? Well, first in line to be judged is what Jesus says right here, the ruler or the prince of this world, right? Satan. To Satan and his minions, this whole process and and you know because he worked through Judas, we know that from the text of Scripture, the whole process of manipulating sinners into crucifying the Son of God must have been a great thrill for him. I mean, he must have been stoked out of his mind. We're making this happen. I'm convinced because of his pride and his arrogance, he really believed he was going to prevail over God. But of course, it turns out the cross was in reality the locus of 
Satan's greatest defeat, his worst defeat. Colossians 2 vividly describes this. Paul says that God nailed to the cross all of our transgressions. Is that not good news? He nailed them to the cross. He canceled out the debt for sins that we owed. And there he, quote, disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them. The cross is the greatest or worst defeat that Satan has experienced. It sealed his doom, didn't it? The cross sealed Satan's doom. It stripped him of his most lethal weapon, right? In his arsenal on his back, the one weapon that he has that he, he thought was the best, right? The fear of death, the fear of judgment. It's been stripped away because of the cross. Now we have no fear of death. Why? Because the worst he can do to you and I now is to bring about our physical death, which does what? Just ushers us into the presence of Christ. So he's been stripped of his power. And he knows it. He knows his time is short. So let's go a little bit deeper on a few more things that we see in these verses because verses 31 and 32 are so important. What causes judgment to come, on the, uh, to come upon the world? What causes Satan to be driven out? It's exactly what Jesus says next in verse 32. When I am lifted up from the earth, underline that, highlight it, whatever you do in your Bible, when I am lifted up from the earth. Now, you have to understand, in Jewish circles, being lifted up from the earth has a long and important history. And the Jews listening that day in Jerusalem, in the temple courts, they understood this history. First of all, there's this great prophecy in Isaiah 52 where God says this, Behold, my servant, okay, which was understood by Jews in that time to be Messiah, behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. The Jews knew that passage very, very well. They knew it was a messianic passage. Second, there was this well-known story of the serpent in the wilderness, right? In the days of Moses. You remember how Jesus brought this up when he was talking to Nicodemus back in chapter three, right? He brought it up. He said to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. So there's a dual meaning here in this phrase lifted up. There's two things happening. On the one hand, it's a reference to the fact that Jesus will be physically lifted up in terms of elevation on the cross. And you see that in verse 33. John makes that clear. He says, he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he might die. So there's the physical element, but there's that second meaning as well, the one prophesied by Isaiah, that Jesus, as Israel's true Messiah, is going to be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. So you got to picture this. Every time you picture the cross, think of this in terms of it's both, both an instrument of sacrificial death and a throne from which King Jesus will draw all men to himself. It has those dual pictures attached to it. Make sense? Now that word draw is important for us to see as well because it validates, helps to validate the identity of Jesus as God the Son. Remember back in chapter six of John's gospel, right? It said that God the Father said, Jesus actually said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Same word. So there's an ontological equivalence being drawn here between the Father and the Son. In John six, the Father draws the elect and saves them through the Son. Here in chapter 12, it says Jesus himself has the same privilege of drawing men and women to himself and saving them. Validation that, we, that they are one the Father and Son. Now, many are confused by that phrase, and maybe, maybe it jumped off the page to you. 
I will draw all men to myself. In verse 32, you see it? Don't be confused. Don't be misled. I know we've covered this before here at Oak Hill. It's important to remind you. This is not all men as in every single person in the history of the world. Okay? It's not. It obviously can't mean that because just from a practical sense, we know that every single human person in human history isn't saved. Right? And and Jesus is talking about judgment here. So we know it can't mean that. It also cannot mean, as many claim, that this is Jesus somehow offering the gospel to the entire universe, to every single person who has lived. And it's true, yes, the gospel is universally offered. We know that to be true. But do not confuse the word draw with the word offer. They're very different words. Do not confuse draw with offer. When God draws somebody, they come. Unless you think humans have such a strong will that they can overcome the will of God, right? That they can thwart the Almighty and say, you're drawing me, but I'm not going to come. Doesn't work that way. An offer is one thing. Drawing is different. God draws his particular ones to himself. So then why use the term all? Well, that's the key question then. If, if, it, means, if it doesn't mean every single human, why use the word all? Well, the first rule of interpretation of hermeneutics is what? Context context and context (laughs) and the context here remember what just happened the arrival of these Greeks Gentiles are here in Jerusalem to meet with Jesus so once again that's what seems to trigger Jesus' statement that the hour has come and so when he says all men I will draw all men to myself what he has in mind is all kinds of men both Jew and Gentile that's what he's getting at here Men like Augustine and Calvin and Spurgeon have clearly articulated this. When Jesus says all men, he means all men without distinction, all kinds of men and women, ethnically, culturally, socially, linguistically, economically, all kinds of men. Jesus will draw all kinds of men to himself according to God's sovereign will. Here's here's Spurgeon's quote on this, and I'll just put it up here because I like it so much. He says, there is no exclusion of any class or creature from the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. Isn't that great? And the history of the church proves how true this is. The muster roll of the converted includes princes and paupers, peers and potmen. You guys know any potmen? It's just one of those great 18th century words. Or, you know. But that's what he's saying. God, Christ will draw all kinds of men to himself on the cross. If you have any questions about that, because I know this is, a, this is one of those things where we get into the whole Arminian-Calvinist debate and we talk about sovereignty and all that, this can, this can be overwhelming because we keep seeing this word all in Scripture and we think it means every single person, and it can't, but I know it's confusing. I know it's difficult. So if you want to talk about that, I like coffee. Just invite me to coffee. I keep saying that. I'm not getting enough coffee these days, by the way. I'm just letting you know. All right. So we talked about the end of the passage, Jesus withdrawing from the crowd and hiding from them. Let's look at why he does that. Question for you. How much evidence, how much evidence concerning his identity and his relationship with the Father had Jesus provided to Israel over the three years of his ministry? So much. An overwhelming amount of evidence. We've we've covered it in the first 12 chapters of John. But if you combine the synoptics and bring that in as well, he has provided an overwhelming amount of evidence. Think of all the interactions that he has had with people. And folks from every walk of life. This is the amazing. It wasn't like Jesus just hung out in Jerusalem and talked to the people at the top. 
right? He was, he was talking to people, common people in Galilee. And he, by the way, he was talking to one of the most prestigious rabbis in all of Israel. He was talking to Roman centurions. He was talking to sinners, right? Talking to a Samaritan woman at a well. Think of all the teaching he did in public everywhere from north to south, from Galilee to Judea, right? Constantly traveling the length and the breadth of the land, always ministering to people, always taking the time to, to teach and to instruct, and doing so year after year, right? Festival after festival. We've seen Jesus at every Passover and every Feast of Tabernacles and every Pentecost, even at Hanukkah. And clearly he was well known by the Pharisees and scribes. Clearly, even the Sadducees in Jerusalem knew about him. The question is, who didn't know about this rabbi from Galilee, from Nazareth? Everybody did. And that's just his teaching. Then consider the miracles. I mean, miracles don't happen every day. If, if one guy were walking around Santa Clarita in a three-year period doing miracles all over the place, would we all not know about him? Of course we would. Turning water into wine, healing the sick, driving out evil spirits, feeding thousands of people at a time, cleansing from leprosy, causing the lame to walk, giving eyesight to a man born blind, raising the dead for crying out loud. What more do you want from this man? What more evidence could he provide that he was sent by God? Well, here in John 12, in the final moments of his public ministry, the people are given one last thing, and it has got to be one of the most dramatic pieces of evidence anybody could ever ask for, a literal voice from heaven. And they still don't believe. Are you serious? Look back at verse 27. Now my soul has become troubled, Jesus says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, for this very reason, I came to this hour. Over the three years of his public ministry, how often do you think Jesus thought about the horror of his impending death? I think we sometimes tend to think, oh, Jesus was so strong, he was such a superman that he only thought about the agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? That's the only moment that Jesus was ever rattled in any way by the fact that he was going to have to be nailed to a cross. And I think this verse helps us understand that more likely this was frequently in his mind. It was in his mind a lot. And as the hour drew closer, obviously his agony grew more intense. Now we know that John does not give us the narrative of the story of the agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. He doesn't give it to us, right? But this statement here has a familiar ring to it. Jesus says, look, I'm deeply distressed. So in my distress, should I say, Father, save me from this death? At Gethsemane, the question was, if possible, Father, let this cup of suffering pass from me. But then he quickly followed that question with, yet not what I will, Father, but what your will is. And here in John 12, Jesus answers his own question. Should I ask the Father to save me from this moment? The answer comes just as quickly, absolutely not. Because it's for this very purpose that I came into the world. So there's some parallels here with Gethsemane. He is agonizing, yet he knows what he has to do. He knows what he has to do. Jesus would never ask the Father to keep him from the very thing that he came in the world to do. So he concludes verse 28. Underline this, highlight it, whatever. Father, glorify your name. What a great summary statement of, of Jesus' entire ministry, right? Father, I'm in distress. Nevertheless, glorify your name. Now you may, may have been taught 
and it's not wrong, but it's not complete either, that Jesus was willing to submit himself to the Father and go to the cross for your sake and for mine. And there is some truth to that, but it still misses the core mark. This is the core mark right here. The ultimate goal in submitting to the horror of the cross was to glorify the Father. That's first and foremost. To display to the world and all the rulers and spiritual forces in the heavenly realms the unfathomable riches of God's love. So that the world would see both his infinite holiness and his perfect justice. That was the goal. Above everything else, you and I, our salvation, which I am not denigrating in any way, shape, or form, that was just a byproduct of God being glorified. That's the outgrowth of Jesus' obedience, and I'm grateful for it. But the core is, is that Jesus submitted to the cross in order to glorify his Father in heaven. It's a beautiful picture. Now look at how God the Father responds to Jesus' obedience. Back to verse 28. Then this voice comes out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Meaning, yes, son, I have been glorified in your life, in your works, in your obedience, and there is still more to come. I will be glorified by you again. And that's an obvious reference with, to what's coming in just three days, right? The cross. And remember, all this is taking place within the temple court. So there's a, there's a huge crowd surrounding Jesus as, first of all, he speaks directly to his father, and then they hear a response from heaven. So these people, I don't know, again, I don't know how many people, but maybe hundreds of people have crowded around Jesus and they've witnessed a conversation between God the Son and God the Father. Jesus says, glorify yourself, and the Father responds with a, with a literal voice from heaven. But here's the thing. By the way, what does it sound like? Don't, don't, when you read the Gospels, try to Again, put yourself in the sandals there and say, wow, what would that have sounded like, right? What would I have heard? Here's the thing. Not everybody heard correctly. Look at verse 29 again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel spoke to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake. Jesus didn't need reassurance from the Father. This has come for your sake, for your benefit. But what a valuable word picture this is to help us understand the operative principle of how God draws particular people to himself. We see this in this, in this look. Here's the thing. There's three categories of people present that day in the temple courts. First of all, there are those who in their hearts and minds had already rejected Jesus. They had already said no. They rejected him. And they do exactly what you would expect such people to do. This is the very same thing that every unbeliever you'll bump into in Santa Clarita tomorrow. This is what they do. They just say, eh. And they write it, they write it off as some you know, natural process. Oh, it thundered. That's all. It's just thunder. Right? They make excuses. They write stuff off. You're like, well, what about this? Ah, it's just thunder. That's the first category. The second category are people, they're, they're, they're not willing to just write that off as thunder, but they also are not attuned to the voice of Yahweh. So they, they don't understand what's going on either, and they think, well, an angel must have spoken. But both of these groups miss the crucial point that Yahweh spoke very clearly. The God of Israel just authenticated, validated this man standing in front of you as his son. And both groups missed it. Remember what God said to Ezekiel when he withdrew his glory from the temple? Remember what he said? You live in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see but do not see and ears to hear but do not hear. That was the condition of the vast majority 
of Jews in the temple that day when Jesus withdrew. They just didn't have ears to hear. The third group that's represented here were the elect of God, those who did have eyes to see and saw, did have ears to hear and heard the voice of Yahweh, including the disciples. By the way, very little has changed over the past 2,000 years. The, the, the human condition is still what it is, as it was in the, in the temple courts in AD 33, fallen, sinful, spiritually blind. Those of us with, with eyes to see know the truth that God has clearly spoken in creation. If people will just look around, they will see his handiwork everywhere, right? Is it not everywhere? But have you noticed they don't see? I mean, the sun, the moon, the stars, the oceans, the mountains, the deserts, the lakes, the rivers. You don't, you don't see that? And then what about down to the cellular level, the microscopic level, the detail and the complexity, the inherent design in everything, the brilliance of how it all fits together and works together. It requires so much faith to ignore that. Those who don't believe have maybe more faith than I do because they're able to ignore so much of the evidence, but they don't have eyes to see. Nothing's changed in 2,000 years. Paul, Paul confirms this in Romans 1. This is a great passage to know. He writes, that which is known about God is evident within mankind. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made so that human beings are without excuse. Nobody in the temple courts that day had any excuse not to trust in Jesus. They had all the evidence they needed. More importantly, God has clearly spoken to mankind in a very special way, right? You have it on your lap. A very special revelation of himself in our Bibles, giving testimony that Jesus is God the Son. Can't miss it. But again, we need to remember that most of the people we interact with day to day, just like those in the temple courts in Jerusalem, they do not have spiritual eyes to see. We need to pray that God will give them to them. We need to pray in those conversations. God, let the scales fall from their eyes. Open their ears to hear the truth. That's the only way that people get saved is if God does that work. So our arguments can be amazing. They can be detailed, but if God isn't at work, it ain't gonna happen. So we trust that God will save whom God will save. And we need to be praying for ears to be opened. Now let's look at the reaction of the people. Verse 34, Jesus just said that he will be lifted up from the earth. Verse 34, the crowd then answered him saying, we have heard out of the law that the Christ or the Messiah is to remain forever. And how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is the son of man? What's going on here? Stubbornness, hard hearts. The people are turning against Jesus on Tuesday. They're already turning against him, right? Why? Because they don't like the picture that he's now drawing on this day. Everything started out so good and so promising, right? Here he comes, riding in on the donkey, just like Zechariah prophesied. Shouts of Hosanna, the king of Israel, you know, the pageant wave. It's the whole thing, right? It all started so good. But now listen to him, they say. He's talking about dying. We don't want a dead Messiah. We want a triumphant Messiah. He's talking about dying. What kind of a Messiah is that? Give us our triumphant king. And when you, when you say that out loud, do you not hear the echoes of the Israelites with Saul? Give us a king. Right? Stubborn hearts. Give us a king that lead us out into battle. 
That's what they wanted in the days of Saul, and God gave it to them. Now they want the same thing. Give us a king who will be triumphal, who will drive the Romans out of the land. Hmm. We call this triumphalism. And this is what had been taught by the shepherds of Israel, by the Pharisees and the scribes. This is, this is what they taught over and over again, and they poisoned the well of the people so that they didn't understand when Jesus came. Now, the folks weren't entirely wrong. The Hebrew scriptures do promise a Messiah that will rule over an eternal kingdom. Right? But notice something crucial in the statement here. Those in the crowd don't say, we have read that Messiah will remain forever. What do they say? We have heard that Messiah will remain forever. They were trusting the shepherds of Israel, Pharisees and scribes, to give them truth. But they were false shepherds. They were giving them partial truths about the Messiah. They weren't looking to the word of God themselves. They were trusting in men. So they hadn't read it. They'd only heard it. So Jesus could have countered in that moment with all kinds of scriptures, right? He could have said, have you not read from Isaiah about how God's servant would be like a, a lamb led to slaughter? Did you miss that? Could have, he could have said, have you not read what the psalmist says, how God will lay his servant in the dust of death? Did you miss Psalm 22? Seriously? He could have said, have you not read from Daniel who prophesied that the Messiah to come must be cut off and have nothing? Do you not know the prophecies of Daniel? Problem is, the people were pretty much aware of, unaware of this other part of Messiah that he would be a suffering servant as well as the triumphant king. So the reality that day was that the tension that existed was, who am I going to believe, what Jesus is teaching here or what the Pharisees have taught me? And given the, their fleshly desires, which one did the people want? They wanted the Pharisees' picture. They wanted the triumphal king. They're turning against Jesus already on Tuesday. This is not what they signed up for. So he gets a final warning. Look, verses 35 and 36. They get a final warning. It, it, it always interests me. Again, Jesus knows the hearts of men, right? He doesn't go, hey, okay, guys, grab your Bibles, turn to Psalm 22, right? He doesn't, okay, let's turn to Isaiah 53, Daniel 9, let's do that, and we'll do a Bible study here. He knows their hearts. He doesn't give them a response. He only gives them a warning because he knows how stubborn they are. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, hey guys, for a little while longer the light's among you. Walk while you have the light so the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light or children of light. Five times Jesus says the word light. It's not subtle. He's not, he's not being unclear here. Five times. In just a few days, darkness is going to descend on Jerusalem in ways that they could not even imagine at this moment. So here's my judicial warning, Jesus says. This is the hour of decision. You have a narrow window of opportunity to turn away from your fleshly desires in what you want in the Messiah and to turn to the truth of what I've told you and been telling you for three years now. Now is the hour of decision. Have you not read? Have you not heard his voice? Today, did you not hear his voice? Either believe in the light that stands before you or be, and become a child of light or be overtaken by the darkness that is coming and confirm your identity as a son of darkness. It's a binary choice, right? Light or darkness. There's, there's no gray. There's no in between. Choose this day whom you will follow and serve. And so these are the final 
public words that Jesus says to the crowds before he withdraws. There's, there's nothing more for him to say. He's given them all the evidence they need. The rest of the book of John now is Jesus preparing his, his friends, his disciples, for the chaos that's about to break out on Friday. And for them, it will be chaotic. They will be thrown into all kinds of things, won't they? And Jesus wants to prepare them. So, wrapping up. Two things that, that you and I can take home from this. Number one, please don't forget that we're in the last days. Right now, we are in the last days. We forget this so easily, right? And in light of that, there should be a sense of urgency in our spiritual walks. Each and every day, urgency. Especially as you, I mean, you look around the world, you read the news, and you see how we are spiraling down as a people, right? Into a Romans 1 mindset at breakneck speed. That should cause us to be more and more urgent in our spiritual walks. How far off is Jesus' return? I'm not setting a date today. I can't tell you for sure. But I can ask this question. Are you preparing for it each day? Will you be ready? Are you living with a sense of anticipation that God may break through at any moment? As in the days of Ezekiel, there is a limit to God's patience. And there will come a time when he will break back into the created order and he will do things that you can't... I mean, we can only read the text and go, wow, that's going to happen, right? Does it not overwhelm you sometimes to read what's coming? It's coming. And this time when he comes, it's not going to be humble on a donkey. He is coming with a rod of iron and with war and with wrath against his enemies. We need urgency right now. So friends, stop doubting. In this day and age, plant yourself firmly and stop doubting. This always takes me back to Hebrews, Hebrews 3, the generation of Hebrews. Look what, look what it says in Hebrews 3. Take care, brethren, that there not be in, in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What a great message that is. Encourage one another to stand firm in these difficult days. It's going to get harder. Second thing, and then we'll wrap up. And this is something that, you know, we see this in this passage, but this is something we should dwell on every single day. See how much your Savior was willing to suffer in order to satisfy the Father and to pay the ransom for your sins. I know we hear it a lot, and it can, over time it can grow, you can grow sort of numb to it, but see the agitation, the distress, the horror, all the physical pain and suffering, all the shame he endured, the weight of becoming sin as our interceding high priest to glorify the Father. I'll close with Spurgeon's words because this is such an encouragement to me. He says this, he says, we owe all to Jesus crucified. All. We owe everything. What is your life but the cross, he says. What is your delight but Jesus crucified for you who lives to make intercession for you? Cling to the cross then. Put both arms around it. Hold to the crucified and never let him go. Come afresh to the cross at this moment and rest there now and forever. Then with the power of God resting upon you, go forth and preach the cross. Tell the story of the bleeding lamb. Let no man's heart fail him. Christ has died. Atonement is complete. God is satisfied. 
peace is proclaimed. Hell is trembling. Heaven is adoring. Earth is waiting. Advance, ye saints, to certain victory you shall overcome through the blood of the Lamb. Amen? Be encouraged. Let's pray together. Lord, I, uh, I thank you for the depth of this passage and the way we see you, Jesus, withdrawing from the, from the temple and from the people and declaring that judgment had come, that everything was about to be summed up in these next few days. Lord, let that be a lesson to us as we navigate our way through this world and we try to figure out what's happening, Lord, that we would cling to the cross, that we would not fall away, that we would, we would not be swept up by this culture that we live in, but we would stand firm, arms locked with our brothers and sisters, knowing that what we read in your word is true and is the only hope that we have. Plant us deeply, Lord. Let our roots go deep in this truth, Lord, so that we might stand in the great day. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your willing heart that in glorifying the Father, you paid my ransom. May we continue to dwell on that this day. For your glory we pray, amen.